Welcome to episode 227 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. I want to thank Livestream for supporting us with just really amazingly great video infrastructure and video streaming. Today we have, oh, and I forgot to say that if you go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk, they will give you a discount. So go, so do that. Livestream.com slash CXO Talk. What, what an amazing show we are going to have today. When we, when we talk about the future of computing, there's a risk that it's going to sound like a, like a pretentious topic. But today, with the two guests that we have, it's actually a realistic and very fascinating topic to discuss. We're going to be speaking today with Anthony Scrifignano, who is the chief data scientist of Dun & Bradstreet. And Anthony's been a guest here a number of times in the past. Anthony, how are how you doing? I'm doing very well, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here again on CXO Talk. And we'll also be speaking with Stephen Wolfram, who truly is one of the, we could say, one of the fathers of modern computer science. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. Stephen Wolfram, thank you. This is your first time here. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. So just to jump in very quickly with some brief background introductions, uh, I'll ask Anthony just to tell us who you are and, and what do you do? So very, very quickly, uh, I'm the chief data, data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. And in my role, I'm responsible for looking at technologies and capabilities that are sort of on the edge of computer science hence our interest in the topic today. Um, not necessarily things that are common practice or and sometimes not even things that have words to describe them. And then also I work with governments around the world as they develop legislation around things like data privacy and data localization and so forth to share best practices and, and make sure that we're doing the right thing for the community at large in the business community. Fantastic. And Stephen Wolfram, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. In a, in a way, you need no introduction, but I think an introduction is, is always good. Well, I've kind of alternated between doing basic science and uh, developing technology for the last many decades. Uh, I run Wolfram Research, a company I started 30 years ago, and uh, we've mainly done three things. We make a product called Mathematica, which gets widely used in research and development and education. About 90% of U.S. universities now have site licenses for it. Uh, we make uh, a thing called Wolfram Alpha, which is a system that um, answers questions and uh, is what provides, for example, the knowledge system for things like Siri. Um, and most recently, we've been uh, sort of rolling all our technology into a thing we call Wolfram Language, which is kind of a new generation computer language. Uh, that has the main objective of sort of building in a lot of knowledge right into the language so that it provides sort of the highest level possible platform from which people can build things. And the exciting thing for us in most recent times is kind of the deployment of Wolfram language, uh, not just in our traditional kind of research and development and consumer spaces, um, but also uh, very much in the enterprise space um, and for software development purposes and so on. Okay. So thank you so much. So so to begin, I think if we're going to talk about the future of computing, and as Stephen and Anthony were saying just before we came live, it's a very big topic to talk about. 
in 45 minutes. Maybe we can begin with artificial intelligence because it's such a popular topic today. And Anthony, how about take a stab initially at defining, let's define some terms so we have common ground. When you think about AI, how do you, how do you define it? What do you think about? Well, first I would say that there isn't one commonly accepted definition. Uh, second, I would say that there's uh, often very little intelligence in artificial intelligence. So there's different types of technologies and capabilities. Many of them share the fact that there's some type of goal that they're trying to reach using different methodologies. Some of them are what we call regressive methods, things like machine learning, where they look backwards at data that has preexisted the incidence of the application and then trying to project that forward into what might happen. Some of the non-regressive methods are what we call neuromorphic methods. These are method, methods that are designed to mimic how we think the brain works. And then more recently, we've seen things like cognitive computing, which are methods that work alongside an intelligent user to help that intelligent user reach a goal in a more efficient way and learning from the behavior, watching that user. The other thing I would say about artificial intelligence is that there's a lot of technology that underpins it that people normally lump in. So, for example, natural language processing, some would argue that there are elements of artificial intelligence in that, and I would agree with them, but that's not an inclusive definition. So, overall, some sort of goal, usually not one that the machine will modify, be very afraid when they start doing that, and then either a regressive method or a non-regressive method, and then either working alongside a user which is sometimes called heuristics, or working separately and giving the user the answer. That's my shortest possible definition that I'm comfortable in this forum giving. Stephen Wolfram, how can we make this understandable to the average person who's not a computer scientist, but who wants to understand what all of this actually means and the implications of it? Well, I think artificial intelligence, as now discussed, and, and I've kind of watched its evolution over the course of nearly 40 years now, um, it's, it's really an extension of a, a long-running story of technology, which is how do we take things which we humans have known how to do and make machines do them for us? And typically the pattern is, in the end, we humans define the goals that we're trying to achieve, and then we want to automate as much as possible getting those goals done. And over the course of the last few decades, there have been all kinds of things where people have said, gosh, when, when, when machines can do this or that particular thing, uh, then we'll know that we've really achieved artificial intelligence. It's always a bit disappointing because in the end, uh, when one thinks it's, it's sort of something that's truly a special human thing, in the end, when it gets done by machines, it's just code underneath. So a great example of that is what we did with Wolfram Alpha, uh, where we're able to answer all sorts of general questions about the world. You know, what's the... Uh, I don't know, what's um, the last year's revenue of IBM or what's um, uh, take the GDP of uh, such and such a country and uh, uh, compare it with GDP of some other country or, or figure out, you know, if your uncle's 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 son, what relation to you is that? Those kinds of things. These kinds of natural language questions that uh, one asks and then being able to answer those questions on the basis of knowledge that our civilization has accumulated, that was one of the kind of characteristic when we can do this, we've got AI kinds of uh, uh, kinds of uh, directions. And then, then when we brought out Wolfram Alpha eight years ago, um, it was like, okay, we can now do a pretty good job of this. And if we look at how was it done, uh, part of it is we're kind of leveraging uh, all of the knowledge that our civilization has accumulated and turning it into something that a computer can deal with, turning making it computable. Um, that's uh, that's a large part of it. 
there were some other things that did come more from a, a sort of basic science point of view of being able to understand natural language. Something wasn't obvious it was going to be possible to understand kind of the typical random things that people ask their phones and so on. That had been a problem people had been working on for a long time. Turned out, I, I hadn't really realized this, but it turned out the, the key extra ingredient that one needed to do good natural language understanding was not just being able to pick apart pieces of English or whatever language one's dealing with, but also having a lot of actual knowledge about the world, because that's what allows one to determine if somebody says Springfield, for example, you have to realize, well, which Springfield they're probably talking about. Well, if you know about all the different Springfields and you know, you know what their populations are, how popular they are on Wikipedia, where they are relative to the person asking the question, then you can figure out what they're talking about. But without that underlying knowledge, you can't really do that. Maybe I could just jump in on what you just said, Stephen, because there's some really interesting things in there that I would love to unpack. The first thing is, you know, last year's revenue at IBM. So at Dun & Bradstreet, we obviously look at things like that. And it's easy right. enough to answer for a public company that files 10Qs and 10Ks. But then when you start asking about Bob's Hat Company or you start asking about um, a company in China and you maybe want to ask the question in English and the answer to the data is in Chinese, it starts to get complex for reasons that transcend natural language processing. We have laws in different countries about what data can cross borders. Those laws are constantly changing. There's privacy laws. There's considerations about data sovereignty, where the data lives, and so forth. So it's no small feat that you're talking about. You're making it sound easy, but the, the orchestration of curating all of that data in different places and then orchestrating an answer in, I'll use the phrase real time in quotes because there's no such thing, but orchestrating the answer in, a, in a, an amount of time that we're comfortable with is no small feat. None of us would believe that the truth is out there on the internet all the time. And yet sometimes we behave that way. So just adjudicating the truth is another challenge in there. It's, it's sort of, as you unpack this thing, you get more and more surprises and it becomes a more curiouser and curiouser world. So part of it is making it look intelligent. And part of it is actually giving an intelligent empirical answer that you can scale and reproduce and, and learn from. And that those all kind of boil together in what you're talking about. You know, you know, maybe one, one thing I might might discuss is the question, you know, in, in the last few years, one of the sort of big excitements has been the whole kind of deep learning neural networks business. And maybe we should talk a little bit about how that compares with other things that are really the, the mainline artificial intelligence that uh, people like Anthony and myself make use of all the time in, in the systems that we build. So what's what's happened? I mean, back... Uh, Actually, the story of neural networks, which is which are kind of idealized models of how brains might work, that story starts in the 1940s. And the models that we're using today are pretty much models that were invented in the 1940s. For example, I, as part of sort of basic science that I did, I worked on these things back in the early 1980s. And I tried to make neural nets that would do interesting things and completely failed. And then over the, over the course of time, um, it's uh, just a few years ago, it finally got to the point where it was possible to have powerful enough computers, large enough training sets, um, that uh, all the things that we've been trying to do for years actually started to work. And I think the, the thing that's worth understanding about kind of a, a neural net type story for, for computing things is it's all a question of did a programmer visibly write the code or did the code somehow automatically get produced? Um, and actually, as a result of a bunch of basic science that I've done, I got very interested in the question of if you want to find a program to do something, how do you do it? Do you have to get a human to write the program? Or can you just go and search in a, a very huge space of possible programs and just discover a program out there in this computational universe of possible programs? 
And actually, one of the things that made Wolf Malfa possible was a bunch of development of being able to search the space of possible programs to pull, pull in surprising things that no human would probably have ever have come up with from this computational universe. But there's sort of a version of that that's, that's happened recently with neural networks and so on, um, where it's possible now to kind of give a large training set. So for example, a couple of years ago, uh, we built an image identification system um, where you can show it, you can find it on the web, imageidentify.com. Um, you can um, you show it an object, one of about 10,000 kinds of objects, and it will tell you, yes, that's a teacup, or yes, that's an elephant, or whatever else. Um, how is that done? About 30 million training images, um, and about uh, maybe a quadrillion GPU operations to actually do the training, but basically one's showing examples to the system, and what it's doing is essentially building a model of how to, how to make distinctions between things so that in the end it will decide this is an elephant and this is a teacup. Um, but what's notable about that is when you say, well, what's the code that does that? Um, it isn't something where uh, you can identify, yes, the code works this or that way. It's something where the code has emerged and been from, from looking at all of these examples. It's not something where you can say a human built those little pieces and this is exactly how it works. I think that's right. one of the things that's sort of a recent feature of the of the current wave of artificial intelligence uh, uh, enthusiasm is this uh, are these cases where essentially there's there's functionality that got produced but no human was involved step by step in making it happen. I have a way of making that feel a little bit real. If I asked you to name five red things, you could rattle off a clown's nose and a stop sign and a kid's ball and and a, a, a you know a, a post-it note and and some a, an apple. And you've never connected the stop sign and the clown's nose before. And now all of a sudden you've done it. You don't know how you did it. You know that the answer is right. And you're comfortable with that answer. You've effectively written a synaptic program in your brain. You don't, your brain doesn't understand what it itself just did. And that's a lot of what it's like to use this type of technology that you'll get to an answer. And one of the big criticisms is that it's difficult to understand the provenance of that decision. So if you have to defend that decision, say in court, or you have to make sure that that decision didn't include any inappropriate bias like race or gender, or you have to make sure that that decision is consistent with other decisions you made. It's very difficult to do that with this type of technology. Some of the newer modalities are trying to address that effectively, having the technology take notes while it's forming its own neural network paths, but then you get into issues with performance and, and really understanding the answer. So I would, I would, very much appreciate the journey that you're talking about, and I've watched at least part of that journey happen over time. Uh, I'm still rooting for the day when, just like I could ask you as a person, well, what did you think about when you did that? What what were your thoughts? What was your thought process? I'd like to be able to do a better job with this neuromorphic technology of asking it that same question. I think it's still a shortcoming. It's getting there. So, you know, one of the things I think is interesting about that, it's one of the places where we as humans potentially have a very dramatic shortcoming because when you train up one of these neural networks to for example do visual object recognition what's happening is it's effectively as the neural network runs it's effectively asking itself a bunch of questions is this a uh, you know is this a very vertical looking kind of thing is this a very green looking kind of thing is this a it's making a bunch of distinctions it's 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 identifying distinctions about things in the world well we as humans 
will sometimes have words for those distinctions. We'll say it's green or it's blue or whatever else, or it's, it's uh, round or it's square, those kinds of things. Um, it's effectively looking at the world and figuring out what are the best distinctions to make to be able to distinguish things in the world. And it's coming up with potentially millions of those distinctions. We as humans, we have about 5,000 words for picturable nouns, for example, in English. We have a very limited number of these kind of uh, distinctions that we make as part of our kind of human language. What's happening inside these kind of AI systems is that they are learning distinctions which, for which they could, there could be words. They just aren't words in our human languages. These are kind of post-linguistic emergent concepts that uh, exist in systems that we're building. Um, and over time, some of those concepts could turn into words that we as humans understand. But one of the difficulties is that sort of what's going on, the inner life of the kind of modern AI is something somewhat beyond uh, what I think humans are, are going to be able to wrap their brains around. Yeah, we, we have three, uh, three categories that we think about, and I think it's a cousin of what you're talking about. So we make a distinction between things and behaviors and relationships. And so as an example, some of the things that we're looking for are abstract, like malfeasance. We use the word malfeasance as opposed to the word fraud because when someone lies to us, they are doing it in anticipation of some future gain. So at the time, legally, that they lie to us, it's questionable whether or not it's fraud, but it's often a precursor to fraud. So now if we just used standard regressive methods and modeled the way fraudsters have behaved in the past, and we know that the best fraudsters will change their behavior when they know they're being watched, then we'll be modeling how the best fraudsters are no longer behaving, which is exactly the opposite of what we want to do. So if we try to use some sort of learning technology, I'll just broaden the term from AI to some sort of learning technology. One of the things that we want to learn is about the sort of the opposite of the space that we're observing, what's not happening, or how is what we're happening changing in quality and character over time so that we can understand when a new behavior has emerged, and then use sort of some sort of discrimination to determine whether it's more or less likely to be malfeasant, and then maybe hand it off to a human agent to do that last really hard part of the work. So artificial intelligence in our world is sometimes reducing the complexity of a problem that's very hard to see and making the, the work of those human brains much more valuable by letting them work on the really hard stuff and not waste their time on the, the more obvious things. It's a really tricky dance. I have a question for, <clears throat> excuse me, for either of you. Right now, there is so much hype around AI. Is that hype justified? And if the implications are so profound for society, for governments, for policies, for businesses, and so forth, how do we get, what is the pathway from here to there, to that point of the, shall we say, the, the flowering of AI machine intelligence in all of its various forms so that it becomes worthy of that hype? I hate to say this, and I'll, I'll probably get you know attacked for saying this by somebody. Just like anything else, AI is a tool. And just like any other tool, you should always understand the problem before you pick up the tool. So I think that AI can become very important when you think about 
autonomous self-driving vehicles, when you think about drones, when you think about anything where we might have something thinking for us because we're not there, I think it's pretty important that we get better at that. But I think we should also be careful when we anthropomorphize. Learning isn't really learning. It's curation and organization and, and attaching of attributes and so forth. So if we really want to be careful about the terminology, I think AI can be very important in our future. The question is whether it's very important because it becomes our worst nightmare because we forgot to think about these things or whether it really improves our human condition. And honestly, the jury's out right now. I could, I can see bad guys doing bad things with all of this amazing technology just as well as I can see good guys solving real problems. I think that we're really at a cusp. So, I mean, the way I see it, what is happening with kind of AI is a, is a continuous uh, line from this really important idea of computation. I mean, back, uh, back before kind of the 1930s and so on, people imagined that if you wanted to have machines that did several different things, you would need several different machines. Then there was this kind of notion that arose in the 1930s of universal computers, the idea that you could have a single machine that could just be programmed to do all these different kinds of things. And that idea, which was initially a kind of an abstract kind of mathematical idea, logical kind of idea, um, that's the idea that and led to kind of um, the, the modern kind of computer revolution and so on. Um, that idea is only part of the way through getting worked out. Um, what, we are, what we are seeing is kind of the computationalization of everything. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the things I like to say about different fields of human endeavor is pick a field, X, from sort of archaeology to zoology. There either is now or soon will be a field called computational X. And that will be the future of that field. Some of those fields already exist, computational biology, computational linguistics. Others are just emerging. What's happening is there's this kind of way of thinking about things in computational terms that really is extremely powerful. It's kind of, I think, the defining idea of the century um, is this, this idea of thinking about things in computational terms. Now, once you're thinking about things in computational terms, you get to automate a lot of stuff that you couldn't automate before. We happen to be kind of in the middle of a, a moment when a particular kind of automation that's made possible by neural nets and so on is in rapid growth. Um, so I've, I've probably seen in my career, I've probably seen, I don't know, a dozen or two uh, you know, fields that have gone through this kind of hypergrowth period. Typically what happens in fields of, of human endeavor, whether it's uh, you know, areas of physics or whether it's um, uh, uh, biology or lots of other kinds of areas, is there'll be long periods, decades, maybe even century, of, of fairly slow, uh, slow growth. And then some methodological advance will occur typically. And then there's this period of hypergrowth where there's a new result every two weeks. You know, I happened to be lucky enough when I, was, when I was a kid, basically, to get involved with particle physics at a moment in the late 1970s when it was in a hypergrowth phase and where kind of important new result, you know, every week or two, you know, new paper with important new thing. That lasted for about five years. Um, since the late 70s, particle physics has been in a pretty flat state. We are right now right in the middle of kind of the hypergrowth phase for machine learning and, uh, and neural network type techniques. Um, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to be picked. Um, you know, we've been having a great time because we've been using this uh, Wolfram language system that we've been building for, for 30 years now and kind of integrating kind of what's new with uh, the possibilities of neural networks with the kind of um, large-scale language that we've developed. And we've, we've now got this very nice symbolic way to, uh, to 
uh, kind of developed sort of a high-level development mechanism for neural networks that we just released actually a few weeks ago. Um, but uh, it's really, it's always exciting to see in these, in these periods of hypergrowth for a field. And what we're seeing right now with neural networks is there's a lot of low-hanging fruit being picked. There's a lot of things where people have said for years, oh, computers will never be able to do that. Uh, for example, visual object recognition was one of those things. Um, and then suddenly it's like, yes, computers can now do it. Um, what we've seen even over the last couple of years is, is with visual object recognition, basically the big thing happened a couple of years ago. Um, you know, we got to the point where we can basically recognize at more or less human level of, of performance um, a whole bunch of different kinds of objects. Um, what happens from here on out with that kind of uh, particular problem is kind of slow growth, hard work. Um, but there are a whole bunch of these things. We're, we're probably about halfway through, I estimate, I, kind of the hypergrowth period for this. Yeah, I was at a conference uh, last week where someone was talking about the autonomous self-driving vehicles and the importance, obviously, of object recognition in having an algorithm drive a car. And the I won't mention the neighborhood, but the neighborhood near the organization that is developing the cars, apparently the, the local youth have found an amusing pastime of making homemade stop signs and holding them up in front of the autonomous self-driving vehicles to make them stop in the middle of traffic. A human being wouldn't be confused by a kid holding up a fake stop sign, but an algorithm designed to recognize a stop sign until it realizes it's being tricked that way because someone told it will stop every time. So I think that I totally agree with what you're saying, Stephen, that there's this sort of constant evolution, and we are certainly in an explosion of evolution. I think we're also, from the way I see it, sometimes in this rush to get to the market, and these sort of unintended consequences don't get thought about. Sometimes they're funny, like the stop sign. Sometimes they're not so funny, and people find a way to take down half the internet with a denial of service attack on security cameras because people don't update their software. So I think that you know we could do a better job of thinking about unintended consequence and I worry a little bit about rush to market. This has nothing to do with you. I don't think you've ever rushed to market, but I think that people who make some of these things are in a hurry to make the next really clever thermostat or the next really clever car, and there there are really clever people out there just waiting for them to do that. So, you know, one thing might might comment on that I think both of us are somewhat involved in is the whole question about um, how do you put knowledge into computable form? How do you How do you go from... Uh, kind of just what's out there um, in the world to something where knowledge is organized, where you know systematically about companies and their characteristics, things like this, or about uh, you know chemicals and their characteristics, all these kinds of things. Um, and one of the one of the questions is always, can you just you know go to the web, forage the web, have a machine intelligence figure out um, you know what the right answer is? And that's been a long story. And the basic answer is you can get eighty five percent of the way there. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to get uh, to use automated methods to, you know, forage Wikipedia and find out, uh, you know, 85% of the correct facts. The problem is you don't know which 15% are completely wrong. And to know that is really something where one needs a process of curation that is a mixture of really good automation with human activity. And I think both of us, in, in our rather different ways, have been have been deeply involved in this curation process. It's something which is not widely understood um, in the industry at large. It's something where people say, "We've got this AI. Now we can just automatically ingest knowledge and get it all organized." Um, my observation has been, as I say, you get a certain fraction of the way there, but in the end, uh, you know, us humans aren't so useless after all. 
And yeah. you actually need to inject that sort of moment of, of human expertise into the thing. It's, it's I, a difficult thing for, for companies to understand because it's kind of like companies tend to be either, either we're a tech company or we're a, a people company, so to speak. And the tech companies just sort of say, we'll just attach the magic AI and it's just going to work. And the people companies are like, oh, we don't know about this technology stuff. We'll just have people all the way. Um, curation is an interesting thing that is a complicated management problem where you kind of have to use automation, inject human judgment when it's appropriate, um, figure out sort of the how to move the process of judgment uh, through the organization in the right way to actually be sure that you're getting the right answer. I would add about that 15% that often it's that 15% that ends in the really apocryphal tale of how someone just failed miserably. There, there, there's some some really important significant – the reason that 15% became sublimated and wasn't so easily discoverable is exactly the reason why there was something really valuable in it. When we you, – you think about – you used an example of you know knowing all there is to know about companies. I happen to be in that business, right? It's not that hard, we all feel, to go on the internet and do a search and find out about a company. How do you know what you're looking at is real? How do you know it's current? All true information is not simultaneously true. All information that you can get to in real time wasn't created a minute ago. So, you know, being able to curate, to understand, to put like with like, to triangulate, to test for veracity, to to have some experience base when things get new and things change, when the environment changes, to understand how it's changing. These are the critical moments where I think there's still kind of hope for the need for our human brains. And I think there's, you're probably not going to program us, program ourselves out of business here. I think that we're going to get to solve bigger and better problems. If I look at, you know, progressive decomposition, taking these really big problems that are not solved yet and breaking them down into smaller and smaller problems that are still not solved. I think there's great hope for being able to focus on the more important parts of those problems with our human brains. And, and these technologies will help get everything else out of the way if we let it. So what are the implications of all of this for society? You, uh, the way that you are talking about it is in almost, in let's say mechanistic terms, computer science terms, as opposed to the way the, uh, the software industry as a whole and its marketing talks about AI, which is in magical results terms. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, and I won't speak for both of us, but I'll speak first for both of us, and then I'll see if Stephen agrees with me. I think we would both say that um, it, it's very important to have technologies. It's very important to advance those technologies, but there's never going to be a substitute for understanding the problem, for humans to continue to advance the art. The, the machines can help advance the art, but we, for the foreseeable future, I think we still get to conduct the orchestra. I think the, the main question is, what can be automated in the world? And the fundamental thing to realize is that what can't be automated is what you're trying to do. That is the definition of the goal. There is no abstract sort of ultimate automatic goal. The goal is something that's defined by us humans and the basis of our kind of history and culture and, and characteristics and so on, um, you know, what the, the the real picture of how we interact with technology and and nowadays with AI is we as humans define the goals, we say what should happen, what we want to achieve, and then it's a question of can we make automated systems that do the best possible job of achieving those things in the best possible way. So one of the big issues then is how do you tell the machines what you want them to achieve? 
So in some cases, very straightforward. But when it gets to be a sort of a, a bigger picture of, well, for example, what, one of the things I've been interested in in, in, in in recent times is kind of how do we communicate with AIs? Um, you know, one thing we can do is, is just say something with natural language. That's good when it comes to sort of uh, short things like ask a, a sort of knowledge-seeking question or make, uh, you know, tell some device to do one particular thing. That works pretty well with, with, with simple natural language. When it gets more complicated, natural language doesn't work very well. We, we have kind of a model of that right now when we look at things like legal contracts. Legal contracts are trying to define what should happen. They start by being written in natural language, but it turns out we need to then invent legalese because we need to sort of take natural language and make it a bit more precise. Well, I think there's sort of an end point of that, of, of that uh, uh, direction, which is to have a kind of code, a kind of computer language, which can say the kinds of things we would want to say in a legal contract, but can do so in a precise fashion. And with our Wolfram language system, uh, this is very much the direction that we've been going in. I mean, what we've mostly been dealing with is things like we can talk about cities, we can talk about distances between places on the earth, we can talk about um, uh, you know all sorts of things about uh, genes and biology, those kinds of things. Um, we can. I, I, I like to use the example. You know, I want a piece of chocolate. We can talk about a piece of chocolate. We know a great deal of detail about all different brands of chocolate and their nutrition content and so on. The I want part we can't yet talk about, uh, but we're working towards being able to actually have a precise language for talking about those kinds of things. And I see that as being kind of the uh, an important intermediary between the way we think about the things and the way that we can have machines do things. There's an interesting nuance in, in the, the, the corners of this problem that we're each working on. So in my world, the problem that we have is the parts of, of language that we're interested in mostly are talking about proper nouns. And proper nouns tend not to be in the dictionary. And they tend also to have meaning which is very context-specific. So if I say Apple announced the new iPhone, whatever, 19, you know, I know that a fruit doesn't announce anything because a fruit is an inanimate object. So I'm immediately down the path that this is more likely to be a proper noun, not only because it's capitalized, but because it's the operator of a transitive verb like that. So what our problem is, is not so much to understand what happened, but to understand whether this thing that happened over here and this thing that happened over here are likely to be talking about the same entity and whether or not that entity is likely to be a business. So we don't have to get down to the meaning of what did they really do. We just have to know that this is something that Apple did and that Apple that did it is more likely to be the computer company than the fruit. That gets notoriously difficult when we start crossing language barriers because the way you talk about Apple in Chinese, for example, happens to be the word for Apple. The way you talk about Dun and Bradstreet in Chinese, there's no word for Dun or Bradstreet, so you have to use some other words that either sound like it or mean something non-offensive, etc. So that understanding, it's called semantic disambiguation of what are you likely to be talking about here, not necessarily what does it mean, but what is, what is it likely to be is the tricky part for us. In your world, you actually need to know what the apple is and you need to know if it's a Macintosh apple or a delicious apple. A much more difficult problem on the meaning part, I would guess much less of a problem in terms of the business side of, you know, is it an acquisition or is it a, you know, a, a, some sort of an LLC? You know, what, what type of businessy thing happened here? It, it gets to be, 
different types of problems. And these are good examples of different problems that you have in, in AI. In one case, I want to know what it means. In another case, I want to know that these two pieces of information are talking about the same entity, and I don't necessarily care what it means. One of the things that we look at, actually, we look at confounding characteristics in language. So we look at sarcasm and neologism. You talked about the legal documents and the, the fact that if I talk about you know a lean piece of mean or leaning into something or a lean you know, in a legal document, those are, and I know they're spelled differently, but those are three different things. The, the difference is there and is in context. When we start making up words, when we start using Twitter handles, when we start talking about tweeting things, when we start using sarcasm, if I say, you know, this is a great company, if you don't mind destroying the environment, we have to figure out that there's an independent and a dependent clause there. They have opposite sentiment and destroying the environment is bad because the environment is good and destroying it is bad. Tricky problem, different tricky problem. I, I think we're going to separate schools together on this and that's exactly the nature of AI. Right. I mean, I, th I think one of the challenges is the capabilities that computation provides and that uh, AI, which is sort of a thing that sits on top of computation, provides, there are all sorts of impressive things that can be done. The issue is kind of how do we uh, direct them for human purposes? You know, one of the things I've been interested in for a long time, we've done for a long time, is this, is this business of kind of algorithm discovery in the computational universe. If you, if you look out there in the space of all possible programs, there are programs that do all sorts of remarkable things. The issue is, can we sort of mine that space of possible programs for ones that are useful to us? It's very much analogous to what happens in kind of physical technology. It's like, okay, there's an iron mine somewhere. There's a tantalum mine somewhere. You know, we find a material like, like uh, let's say, tantalum, and we say, um, you know, or gadolinium, is this useful for anything? Well, it turns out, yes, it's discovered it's useful to make magnets out of. Um, there's a similar kind of issue in the sort of computational universe of possible programs. There's a lot of them that do things which look interesting, but are they, are they, can they be kind of mined for human purposes? And so this, again, puts the, puts the pressure on, okay, so what do we actually want to do? You know, computation and now AI provide amazing capabilities. The issue is what do we want to do with them, and how do we uh, make something where both we as humans can sort of understand what we're asking for and where the machine can understand what we're asking for. So, for example, in, in, in my life, I've spent a huge amount of time developing kind of very high-level computer languages that let one express kind of things in a way that are sort of the highest possible level of expression for humans of what they want to do that can also be understood by machines. Um, I think this is, you know, as we look towards sort of the smart contract world of saying, you know, of telling our machines in general terms, what do you want to achieve? We need a language to do that. I think sort of the ultimate smart contract that um, us humans kind of have to have to think about is the is the sort of whole constitution of what do we want the AIs to do? You know, we we would like to say, okay, AIs, we're going to make put AIs in charge of all kinds of things in the world, and we're going to have all kinds of systems be, be done automatically. Um, we want to give some overall guidelines. You call them ethical guidelines uh, for uh, how the AIs should behave with respect to us. Okay, AIs, be nice to us. How do we express that? How do we define uh, what that means? How do, we, how do we specify sort of the constitution for the AIs? Um, so I've, I've been interested in this problem of sort of what is the language that we can use to write the constitution for the AIs? And the next question is, what should the Constitution actually say? Yeah. And you were, you were mentioning, Anthony, the, the whole question of uh, 
sort of looking backwards, the regressive approach to things. You know, one of the one of the things you might say is, okay, AIs, just do things like us humans do. So, so uh, Anthony well, Scrifignano, um, this question that Stephen just raised on the ethical dimensions uh, is it simply a matter of do it, do it we would want. Be nice to us. Your company, Dun & Bradstreet, deals with financial matters. So so dive into the ethical implications. And, and I think this relates back to an earlier part of the discussion that, uh, uh, that, we, that Anthony brought up regarding the unintended consequences. Yeah, so uh, I want to first just respond to the somewhat rhetorical ending of what Stephen said, um, because I loved it. If we actually asked our algorithms to behave as we have, you might be surprised at how badly they behave because we we don't always do we we correct our memory and make our prior accomplishments greater than they were we we tend to sublimate our prior failures we tend to amplify in our minds how successful certain things were and i like to say that we should make new mistakes right so if i just write algorithms that behave the way i have behaved in the past then that means warts and all that means you know, foibles. And, and so hopefully I have learned in my life and I don't even behave the way I have behaved in the past. So what I probably at best would want them to do is behave the way I would like to behave in the future. And that's a whole. So you want to, so you want AIs to be an idealized version of maybe. humanity? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I do, but there is this problem. There's, there's a couple problems with this. One is that we don't all want the same thing. So we don't define success the same way. We don't define winning the same way. We don't define being nice the same way. Sometimes being nice to someone, tough love. Sometimes you have to do something that isn't nice to get a quote-unquote better outcome. And then there's this whole question of suboptimality that sometimes what's better for me isn't necessarily better for everyone else or better for you. And so we get into the whole, you know, best alternative to a negotiated agreement kind of argument of, you know, what's better for the common good and is what's better for the common good the thing we should do when there's this. So these are all really philosophical questions, but it's so easy to go down that road. You can imagine how hard it would be to automate this and to do this in, in, in AI when Stephen was talking, I was also thinking about language. So I do a lot of work in computational linguistics across languages. And and within the, the sphere of two or more languages, something that you think is pretty obvious to say can't easily be transformed or translated into a language that maybe doesn't have a word for yes or no or a language that has no subjunctive. In legal contracts, there's a very vast distinction between you, you should and you must. It's critical in English if, if we say – you should do the following things or you must do the following things. Those are, there's, there's multiple words for should and must in Chinese and some of them are used synonymously. So you have to understand the context in order to understand whether this is a should or a must. And sometimes native speakers disagree about the interpretation of that. Think about what that does to a contract. Now try to imagine talking to a machine to set its goals at a level of ambiguity that we were talking about with this ethics and we can't even get should and must right it's a very big problem, and, and, so, and I think learning is important. So, you know, I think you're, you're making the case for what I just spent 30 years trying to do, which is <laughs> we need an actual precise language for expressing what we want. And when you talk about, you know, when we look at sort of the future of legal contracts and so on, today legal contracts are written, you know, in English and legalese, whatever else. And, you know, people say, well, it's important. There's a little bit of wiggle room in the language and so on. 
But actually, in many cases, it'd be a lot better if everybody knew, you know, this is exactly what the contract means. So, so long as we can express those concepts in a precise language, it's much better if we can just, both parties can just agree, this is what we meant. And some part of the contract will be written in sort of very, uh, in, in something which is almost like logic. Some part of it might be written using some machine learning classifier. It might say, you know, that we both agree that it's a grade A orange if this machine learning classifier that we both agreed on looks at it and says it's a grade A orange. Um, and that might be a, a, you know, a good way to write the contract. And, and of course, a big advantage of having a contract that's written in computable form is that then you can just say, okay, computer, you know, figure out if the contract was satisfied or set things up so that it is satisfied. Um, and I think it becomes, you know, it's, we're able to kind of automate a lot of the process of, of, um, uh, of, of doing these things. I think that's a, it's a really interesting, you know, if both parties agree, this is what we really meant. It's written in code, not in, not in legalese. Then we have quite an interesting thing going on and a place where we can get a lot of transactions to happen in a much more efficient way because machines can, can, you know, interact with each other using kind of automatic contracts rather than humans having to interpret this or that thing going on. I, I completely, first of all, I, I mean this with all, with a complete absence of sarcasm. I look forward to your success. I, I think that, you know, this is something that, that for that 85% of contracts that are pretty straightforward, here's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how we will measure the results. Here's the, what happens if there's a breach in the contract, all the elements of a contract most of the time are pretty straightforward, certainly in commercial terms. If you look at UCC, things like that, there's commercial codes that codify these things. Great. When we have to make a contract to describe what we're going to do for something in the future that has never been done before and maybe doing it with things that we don't have exact terminology, now it gets tricky. And I think a good argument would be, great, let's let the jurists and the legal minds and the, let's let everybody focus on those, on that part of, of the hard stuff and not worry about the contract of whether or not you ship me the, the, the apples I ordered. And okay. I'll talk about the fruit. I, 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 I hate to cut you off. We're, we're just out of time. And I would ask each of you to spend a moment and share your advice to uh, business people, to policymakers in the government, to technologists regarding AI. And again, I, I apologize, Stephen, for cutting you off. It's just, uh, we're, we're just out of time. Well, I guess, I, let, me, let me say something first, perhaps. I, the, you know, the most important thing, I think, is this kind of think computationally. Take, use this kind of computational paradigm that we are uh, slowly beginning to understand and think about those things in those terms. Define things in those terms. Once you've defined things in those terms, then it's a sort of much easier problem to say, okay, AIs, now we've defined what we want in computational terms, now help us achieve this, so to speak. So I think that's my, that's my main point, is, is thinking computational terms, um, get your thoughts organized in a way that you could imagine explaining them to a computer, so to speak. Um, that's, that's, I think, the, the important direction. So I, I always give my advice in threes, and one of my threes is going to be almost verbatim what you just said, but I thought of it first. Just kidding. Um, the first thing I would say is be humble. I think that there is always a difference between the 
theoretical science fiction, what's possible and what's real. So be, make an honest assessment of how much of what you're trying to do, if it's especially if it's a commercial application or, or a law about the future, be, be realistic about what's possible so that you constrain this to a space that you can understand. The second one is what I think you were saying, Stephen, which is to be as clear as you possibly can be about your goals. And if that means you have to invent a whole new language to do it, then have at it. But but we've got to get this ambiguity and squishiness out of this to really get better at it. And I think we're making great strides in that in that regard. And then the third thing I would say is to, to learn, to make new mistakes, to make sure that we're constantly observing our behavior with this amazing technology and make sure that we're using it to solve incrementally more important problems and more difficult problems that we're not just rushing to market and sort of making the same mistakes over again with different names. Okay. What, a, what an amazing discussion we have had. We have been talking with Stephen Wolfram, who is truly one of the the fathers of modern computer science and the founder of Wolfram Research and other companies, and Anthony Scrifignano, who is an amazing, amazing thinker and is the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Stephen, thank you for, for being here. And I, and I hope you'll come back and do it another time. And Anthony, thank you for being here. And, I, and you're scheduled to come back. And so I know you'll be back to, to do it another time. And my hope is that we can get the two of you back together again to continue this conversation. Because as, as you both pointed out right at the start, 45 minutes is not enough time. And everybody, thank you for watching. Come back next week. We will have another great show. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. <laughs> Click the YouTube button on your screen and subscribe. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.